Hello? Henriette, it's Michael. Hi, Michael. So, the elections are over. Everybody got a chance to breathe for a minute. How are you feeling? I feel sort of the same as when it was still happening, but slightly more relieved. To be honest, I just don't understand. I mean, I totally understand why the elections were a big deal, but wasn't it sort of a distraction also from, you know, things happening on the ground? Well, in some ways. In other ways, they're definitely going to affect things happening on the ground. The easiest example is Bibi is now an open supporter of annexation. I mean, which he has always been. Right. But, you know, as we've been talking about, it's a little bit different when it's out in the open. I guess. And what's your what's your sense of how how people around you are are looking at the, the results? I think people around me are a little scared. Um, I've been hearing many people kind of disillusioned with where things are headed and trying to hold on to any bit of hope wherever they can find it, which is understandable and a very human reaction. But I don't know. I mean, have you read Dami and Orly's piece about Jewish Arab partnerships? Have you read it yet? Yeah. You know, they're talking about a need to reconfigure the way that we approach the struggle and stop looking at it when in the old power dynamics and in ways that fail to recognize reality as it is. I think that's, uh, I mean, it was a sharp bit of a wake-up call kind of piece, but I think uh, I'm glad that these conversations are already happening, you know, just a, just a week after elections. I think hopefully this will challenge us to see what we can do about it. To adapt, to to evolve to the new situation, even if it looks almost identical to the old situation. So I heard you talk to Lisa about all that jazz. Yeah, I caught up with Lisa Goldman, who is one of the co-founders of 972 and one of our more prolific writers, and who you may have seen on your television or heard on your radio in the past few weeks talking about the Israeli elections. We talked about the elections, what happened, but mostly what comes next and what the short-term consequences, the long-term consequences, and the kind of pivotal moment that a fourth BB term puts basically liberal Zionists in, how they're going to have to decide whether to wake up or not. How are we still having these conversations? Well, apparently it's still a thing. Here's my conversation with Lisa. And just a quick note, now that the elections are over, we're going to be publishing the podcast every two weeks. And I'm really looking forward to it because we're going to have more time to experiment with different types of storytelling and go out there, bring our recorders into the field and bring you the kind of stories that we want to hear ourselves. We're here to talk about the elections the day after, the week after, what they mean, what we can expect, uh, what we should and shouldn't be surprised by. And so I want to start by asking you, Lisa, Netanyahu, before these elections, was in power consecutively for 10 years. That was three election cycles where he got a clear mandate to be the leader of Israel. Can anybody feign surprise anymore? Um, that, that this is what Israelis keep choosing, that this is the Israeli leadership? 
I don't think that either one of us was surprised. Um, you know, I I remember up until the the, the last half half day before the election results were announced, uh, I was a hundred percent certain that he that Netanyahu was going to be reelected. Um, and then toward the very end, there were all these um, pundits who. Uh, infused me with self-doubt, which I will never allow to happen again because I was right. Uh, so no, I, look, it's more, more seriously. No, I don't think that we, we should be surprised. And the reason is that there were, we've been for one decade um, on a very, very, as far as I can see, a very straight um, um, momentum, uh, st- straight trajectory. Um, Netanyahu, uh, you know, as we all know, he's very, very ideological. Um, he's, you know, was raised by a strongly revisionist uh, Zionist father. His very hawkish views, and he's never changed those views. You know, if you go back to videos of, and, uh, and and recordings that he made in, in the 70s, and you know, that famous MIT debate that he that he made with Fouad Ajami, I think in 1974 or something, and you know, um, it's 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 on the internet. It's very easy to find. You can see that his views really have been set in stone since he was a very young man. And I think that he really um, had a sort of a man, he had a self-imposed mandate to shift the Israeli polity and society toward the um, the the point that toward the view the worldview of those revisionist Zionists with a strong soupçon of, um, uh, of uh, neoliberal economics. Um, I haven't you know, we saw with uh, Benny Gantz that he didn't have any different ideas at all uh, when he was campaigning. You know, there was a sort of a um, an a, idea of a, a kinder, gentler Israel. You know, where we'd be less we'd be less uh, uh, aligned with um, with uh, authoritarians like Orban. Um, but I think, in general, the discourse has just shifted so far to the right that there's not there's there was there was just no no room to pull it back anymore, uh, and we know, exam- for example, that you know Dalia Sh- Shandlin, who's uh, you know expert pollster and one of our staffers, you know, she's been she's been um, polling Israelis on the issue of right wing uh, views since nineteen since sorry since two thousand and seven right and and since two thousand and seven it's been fifty two percent of Israeli Jewish voters have said have identified as right wing that hasn't changed for. 12 years. One of her pre-election columns was titled, The Right in Israel Keeps Winning Because Israelis Are Right Wing. Right, which was a terrific, I think she wrote a whole series of amazing pieces, but I think that that was actually one of her best, her best pieces. Yeah, Israelis are right wing. And by the way, every time it's, you know, because I don't, because I live abroad right now, and it, I, I have a sort of a zoom out perspective. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I do see in Israel amongst my Israeli friends that, you know, even amongst people who I always thought of in the 90s and 2000s, early 2000s as liberals, you can't even say the word occupation anymore. It's quite remarkable, right? The, it, they'll say things like, you know, the territories or, um, or they might say um, the administered territories, but the word occupation is, has almost been pushed completely out of the discourse. So obviously one of the people shifting it out is Netanyahu and his his right-wing coalition, his very much settler-aligned uh, coalition. And every everybody, I'm sure, knows at this point that one of the last-minute pre-election ploys that he, that he pulled was to finally say out in the open, if re-elected, I will begin annexing the, the settlements in the West Bank. Um, and there's a little bit more nuance to, to, to his statement. But what what is... 
what's the consequence of of actually moving forward with that of leaving the paradigm of occupation behind us and moving into what I describe as ensuring that the Israeli control of the Palestinian territories is permanent? It's a lot of consequences, huh? Uh, so there, I think there are three sort of broad uh, headings of, of consequences. There are the international consequences, right, which I'll just push aside quickly because we're talking more about Israeli uh, domestic issues. But, you know, internationally, I, I noticed that a lot of people were saying, you know, that um, Trump, had, by giving uh, Netanyahu more or less the green light on this issue, has um, sort of upended post-World War II um, tacit and global understanding about not about the, about occupied territory not being um, annexed. Um, so you know what's going to happen the next time the USSR uh, <laughs> Putin uh, invades uh, you know Ukraine for example or some or Oseta. Um, the other, but for I think for Israelis you know they're going to have to. They're gonna they're gonna come up against a pretty thick wall pretty soon, right? Like, what? How can we be a democracy if half the people uh, living now permanently under Israeli control um, can't vote? You know, that's a, you know, that's that's going to be pretty pretty difficult, I think, to to explain to the outside world. I think most Israelis themselves are just content to not, you know, la la la, I can't hear you. But for Jews living abroad who identify uh, uh, with Israel as one of the most important pillars of their identity, um, but who are also very much aligned with the liberals. What are what are they going to do? You know, as as Democrats and as people who who whose worldview is informed by liberal values, um, and who are also um, you know committed to Israel as part of their Jewish identity. Uh, how how are they going to make sense of that? I think that's going to be the major issue. Right, because one of the main ways to explain the current situation is by insisting that it is temporary. And the moment you right. take that away, it's a lot harder to ignore. It's a lot harder to to write off, to to push under the rug. But you know, I've I've had this conversation many times over the past couple of years. You know, it's become more and more apparent um, to to Jewish Americans and to Jews in Canada, where I now live, um, that that um, they're going to have to they're going to have a lot of explaining to do to their kids. Uh, and one friend of mine, who's uh, the editor in chief of a, a very widely read name brand digital uh, media outlet based in New York, no, I'm not naming any names. Uh, he he was actually almost in tears uh, when he he said, "I really don't know what to pass on to my kids. You know, they don't speak Hebrew, they don't speak Yiddish, they're not religious. I didn't really I didn't raise them with religion, but I I always told them that Israel uh, is you know." A, a, a very important part of their identity. Um, what do I tell them now? You know, how do I explain this? Um, and I don't think that he's he's a lone voice. In fact, I know he's not. I just think that he was super honest in in saying that explicitly. Um, you know, and and as as we know, you know, in in conservative and reform synagogues, up until pretty recently, it, you know, you could stand up in the synagogue and and say in front of the whole congregation that you weren't sure whether or not you believed in God, and that would be no problem. But if you were to stand up and say you weren't so sure you were a Zionist, they might say, "Okay, <laughs> you're not welcome here." Uh, and I think that, you know. We know that um, a Jewish uh, person who is an anti-Zionist is not going to be right now invited to to 
or non-Zionist, not going to be invited into your average suburban liberal synagogue uh, to give a talk about Israeli politics, right? Um, so, so these this kind of worldview is going to is going to be profoundly uh, affected, and I don't really see how. Jewish Americans are, are going to make sense of that going forward, where they're going to, from where they're going to derive their identity, if it's not based on having a grandmother from the old country or speaking Yiddish or speaking Hebrew. Um, it's just been Israel for about four decades now. So I don't, I think it's going to cause a quite a, a big identity crisis. That's, that's one constituency. Uh, maybe constituency is the wrong, is the wrong term. Um, there's a lot of other people in the world um, who've invested quite a bit in the idea of a two-state solution and the idea of Israel is a democratic and, and Jewish state and that balance is made possible by some sort of separation from the Palestinians. Right. I'm thinking of think tanks. I'm thinking of tons of American politicians. I'm thinking of many, many countries in the world Um from Western Europeans to, you know, all really everywhere. Um, also the NGO industry, right? The peace industry. Yeah. Where, where does this, you know, I, I actually, I think that the, the, the reality on the ground won't change that much. What we're, what we're seeing momentum toward is really much more of just making the current situation permanent as opposed to temporary. Right. Absolutely. But what what kind of crisis, what, what kind of spot does that put everybody else who's invested so much in essentially being deceived, um, as we can see now? Where does I that think put they're going to keep on. I'll tell you honestly, Mike, I think there's so much money riding on this deception that people are going to keep on pretending. I really don't. I, I think it's going to take so much courage that most people don't really have um, to, to just say, okay, finally, I, I see the light. I cannot deny this anymore. Um, Israel has no intention of ever withdrawing from any part of the West Bank, um, nor does it have any intention of ever lifting its military siege on Gaza. I can't reconcile my liberal values or my, my, my profession with what's with the reality on the ground. Therefore, I'm going to change everything about my life you know, um, quit my job, uh, stop going to my synagogue, uh, lose a lot of friends. Who's going to do that? Very few people. Is it worth it? I'm not even sure it's worth it. Um, I I really think that most people are going to continue to lie to themselves, especially because there's so much money flowing through this, um, through this uh, NGO industry. And yeah, I think you look, I've been on panels with people who have, who have been, you know, when confronted with lists and lists of reasons why there's never going to be a two-state solution have just said, I don't care. I am going to, there is no, you know, there's no choice. You can't give up. You just have to keep on working for it. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people, most people are going to respond like that. Just say, you, you, you can't give up. You have to keep fighting. I actually, I, I, that last part I agree with, but the, the previous part, I, I have to disagree with a little bit or maybe just out of blind hope, but that, you know, for those people who've invested so much of themselves, they're not going to be able to ignore it that, you know, I mean, we got the Jared Kushner 
announced a few a few minutes ago. Um, yeah. This is Wednesday evening Israel time. That the the Trump peace plan, which Pompeo has said over uh, a few times over the past few weeks, is refused to to condemn the the idea of of uh, Israeli annexation, which we're pretty sure does not include a Palestinian state. That he's going to prevent, present present this plan in uh, as early as June. Netanyahu has been saying for years, and I agree that people have been ignoring him, that we're mm-hmm. never going to withdraw from the West Bank. I, I was looking back on my notes from an interview I did with a progressive American uh, leader on this issue from a decade ago. And it was a time when, when people were really using this this metaphor or term that there's the closing window of opportunity for a two-state solution. And I asked him, how do you know when the window is closed? And he said, it's kind of like driving down a foggy road and you know that there's a cliff ahead, but you can't see where it's coming and yet you keep driving and you just don't know that you're off of it until you're falling, until you're you know crashing. Right. I think that people are going to realize that they're crashing. Um, and it's, but it's then a question what do they of do? what do you do with that? So for a lot of American Jews and others, I think that it'll lead to just disengagement. We already see younger I mean, generations less engaged, uh, more apathetic, less. Yeah, that's already the case, right? That that the generation uh, of American uh, of Jewish Americans uh, younger than thirty five are majority disengaged, right? Isn't that isn't that? I think that's what the the latest data uh, said. Uh, but um, but at the same time, you know, I think a lot of people are just going to kind of go over the cliff. I, I, I'm I'm actually. Uh, you know, there's no schadenfreude here. You know, I mean, I, I grew up in a, you know, pretty close-knit Jewish community, a regular synagogue or that sort of thing in um, in Vancouver, where I was, where I, in Canada, where I grew up. And, and I'm, I'm quite, you know, I'm, I'm quite worried and sad, you know, to, to, about, about, um, about what's, what's, what I think is going to happen, which is um, a sort of a, a massive sort of, crisis of identity and a flailing around looking for an identity and it's going to be quite difficult and what about for israelis and palestinians and israelis i mean here those who are invested personally uh, and politically in resolving the conflict and palestinian stakeholders what's what's plan b is there a plan b I don't see a plan B. Uh, what I what I really see is, um, you know, the occupation is uh, right now. It's it's uh, as I call it a very sustainable, unsustainable situation, right? So I think you know we all know that the military occupation can um, can can remain in place for probably quite a long time. You know, and there will be a tipping point. I don't know when or what it will be, um, but I, I can easily see the status quo continuing for another decade. After the, at, at some point, there's going to be some kind of a big, massive upheaval, whether it will be um, political violence or just um, or some other kind of upheaval. You know, I, I don't know. But um, again, I, I think that we're looking at things getting quite a lot worse before they start to, if not get better, then at least shift toward a, a new paradigm. You know, I, I really don't see a way to maintain um, a state called Israel with a Jewish majority um, in the absence of political violence or, you know, just not with basically withholding human and, and civil rights from 
at least from at least half the population. Let's let's talk a little bit about the politics. I think a lot of people on the left at least a little bit celebrated that Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Shaked uh, did not make it into the next Knesset. They were not only proponents of annexation, but Shaked was trying to do a, a legal revolution um, to you know, basically remove checks and balances from the existing checks and balances from the Israeli system. Bennett was trying to introduce a very settler and religious ideology into the education system, much more so than it ever was. What, what is the next government likely to look like? Yeah, um, it's well. Everyone says, "Oh, that every you know, for the past three election cycles, we've said this is going to be this is going to be the most right wing government ever, right?" Uh, it's it's going to be it's going to have overt Kahanists, right? This time, that's the big change. But otherwise, I, I don't I don't see any significant difference in in this coalition. I mean, do you? Seriously, has anybody on the far right said something that's never been said by anybody in the Likud party? I think there's two things that are going to be different. Um, And one of them is a a broader statement, which is that the the right-wing ideology and the steps and the policies that have been proposed and floated and begun to be implemented over the past few years were just given another mandate another vote of confidence by the Israeli public, or at least enough of them. And I think we can mm-hmm. see them go further. Um, and there's lots of other parties that want to see the Supreme Court defanged is the best word I can, I can come Absolutely. up with. Um, essentially removing its ability to, to overturn unconstitutional laws, um, you know, things like annexation. And the biggest one, which could turn into the biggest constitutional crisis, is uh, somehow protecting Netanyahu from the indictment charges that are coming sometime in the next year. Right. Um, so, you know, will it be very different? No. But will they go further in the same direction? I think so. Look, they will go further. Uh, certain, there certainly is, it, Netanyahu certainly does seem to want somehow to hollow out Israel's democratic institutions. Um, I, I don't think that this was like Ayelet Shaked's little personal brainchild. I, you know, I think Netanyahu is not just complicit, but like overtly desires this um, for all sorts of reasons, historical and also because this is you know, protecting his own behind. Um, you know, at, at the risk of um, falling, you know, straight into uh, uh, the trap of making unpleasant analogies, I would say that you know Netanyahu is kind of von Hindenburg, thinking he can control the brown shirts, and as we all know, von Hindenburg lost control of the brown shirts, and and I think that's where we're headed right now. That Netanyahu really thinks that he can stay in the. As we know, Netanyahu's you know his very first priority in life is staying in power and he'll do anything to stay in power. And he thought he could strike a bargain with, you know, uh, the Judeo Nazis on the far right and, and, and that he could control them. And I don't think he can control them. We're talking about the followers of America, Hane, who uh, Correct. the Israeli Supreme court compared to, to the Nazis and some of their ideology when they outlawed the party and marked them a terrorist group in the eighties. And Yeshayahu Leibovitz, of course, coined the term yeah. uh, Judeo-Nazis, yeah. There's so one other bargain there, which um, if we're just getting into the politics of it still, there's one place where I see the situation potentially falling apart, which is that on the one end of Netanyahu's um, 
coalition, mm-hmm. well, you know, the makeup of his the, his expected coalition is a very large Likud um, and a lot of smaller uh, right-wing parties and the ultra-Orthodox. And one of the smaller right-wing parties, almost all of which have enough votes to topple a government at any time or prevent him from forming one, is Avigdor Lieberman, uh, right. who is a very secular, uh, an adamantly secular uh, right-winger. And one of his biggest issues as a representative of the community of, of former Soviet immigrants is separation of church and state in various ways from marriage to conversion and the, the consequences of, of the, the rabbinate and religion on, on civic matters. There's a, there's a chance that he's not going to be able to, to hold it together. Um, and I know right. this still feels like a, a big long shot and it was a, a little bit of a fantasy to begin with, but is there some sort of unity government option if that happens? What you think that Gantz and Netanyahu are going to get together and from a unity? That Netanyahu would share power as prime minister? I don't think so. I don't see that happening. Like if I'm if I'm wrong, you know, I'll buy you lunch. But uh, I, I really don't see that happening. Um, I, I I I think that um, he'll that Netanyahu will 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 pull his uh, little bunny rabbit out of his hat as he always does. Um, the man is absolutely determined to stay in power. They'll find a way around it, as as my mother would never have said. Mark my words, they'll find they'll find a way. Uh, I, I really don't see Netanyahu um, pairing up with Gantz. And by the way, I don't I don't know if you feel this, but you know, for, as well. But what I see is that Gantz having having conceded, he he almost already seems like ancient history. You know, he he doesn't. Well, see, one of the one know? of the tragedies of the Israeli system is that it's really not conducive to the grooming of new leaders. That's a very, very astute observation. That's true. Yeah. So he, he came in at a very high level considering that with his right. his military chops and his reputation and right. that he brought, you know, four other generals with him. But no, you know, I, no, I think also, go ahead. Sorry. I, I just hear over and over and over again from people who say that they reluctantly voted for Netanyahu because they just don't see anyone else who they can imagine as a strong enough leader, as a, as a, you know, experienced enough leader. Right. And, and some of them even say to me that, that Gantz could be that person, but that he's not yet. Right. But the Israeli opposition isn't the place where you become that. That's, that's Netanyahu's big, huge success, right? He has positioned himself and made himself through his mastery of the media, the audio media, the visual media, he has positioned himself in such a way that people can no longer imagine Israel without him. Isn't that crazy? Think about it. People can't imagine it. Part of it's just inertia. There's inertia, there's a lack of imagination, there's fear. But, you know, yeah. It's but he's he Netanyahu really understands how to plug into those uh, plug into into those um, those factors the inertia the fear the lack of imagination and just say I'm here with my baritone voice and my Brioni suits and my perfectly groomed violet rinse hair and I am friends with all the big leaders and I why would you want to change you know and um, there was a great little um, Lior Ashkenazi on Gava Uma. 
uh, the Israeli satire program, did an amazing little skit the day after the uh, the day before after the election, where he just sort of listed in very rapidly all the things that Netanyahu had done, and pretending, you know, sort of playing devil's advocate as though he were a Netanyahu supporter. So he stole millions. Stole. So he spent thousands on this, and so he did this. For that, you want to change a prime minister? For that, you know. I think he really summed up the Israeli attitude with that skit. Hagai Matar wrote an article on 972 a few days ago, five reasons why re-electing Netanyahu was the most rational Bang choice on. most Israelis could have made, and including security, that he's provided stability, that he's survived what you know we were warned was going to be a diplomatic tsunami. Um, and, you know, it, it makes sense. Just yeah, I think just one last point. One of the things that Netanyahu has been, and it's you know building on your point. One of the things that Netanyahu has been so successful at doing is also getting people to ignore the fact that um, the bright and shiny things that they admire are proud of about Israel aren't really making their own lives better. You know, because you know the the income gap in Israel is huge. Most people are barely making it from month to month. And yet they've all, they'll all tell you that the Israeli economy is flourishing. Who's it flourishing for? You know, a handful of rich people? On that note, thank you for joining us, Lisa. I'm Michael Schaefer-Omerman, and this episode was produced by myself with help from Henriette Schacher. If you liked what you just heard and you want to help support us, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you in two weeks with the next episode.